Hello and welcome to the show. Uh, today we're joined by Megan Burks, coach, writer, wannabe surf goddess, who loves coffee, CrossFit, movement and sleep, a certified professional coach uh, with certificates three and four in fitness, a Wim Hof method teacher. Uh, Megan's actually been my coach through COVID, so it's a pleasure to have her on the show. She's been my compassionate butt kicker for the past year. Uh, Megan's helped me realize some of the limiting beliefs that were holding me back in my career. And I've appreciated a combination of humor, humility, and deep embodied wisdom. And it's a delight to have you on the show. Welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yay. Welcome aboard. Now, this is super exciting for me because I don't know a lot about your good self. I've only heard very good things from Jad, but it's difficult for me not to pick up straight away on the Wim Hof method. Yeah. Are you ready? Pull in, let it go. Yes. Pull in, let it go. I I started doing that stuff years ago and I cannot even begin to, well, I don't have to tell you, Megan, but I can't begin to tell our listeners what a game changer that was. Talk about that. So in terms of modalities or methodologies that we can use in any kind of a practice, the Wim Hof breathing, but the cold exposure to me has actually been probably more transformative than the actual breathing in and of itself. Um, Now, Jad has heard me bang on about this and I've said, oh, I'm going to get you in an ice bath and we're going to wait till your pool's really cold and we're going to do that. Now, I use it a lot last year with my coaching clients as a method to deal with anxiety. Because anybody who has ever done either a cold shower or an ice bath, so I'm talking, you know, zero degrees, you're sitting in a tub full of ice, it's going, you know, up your clucker through your bathing suit, it's really uncomfortable, Mm. it's a very unpleasant situation to be in, very confrontational. But how it's so transformative and why it's so transformative is because in my experience, the kind of physiological cascade that you start to experience at the beginning of an anxiety or a panic attack is exactly the same as the physiological cascade that you start to experience when you expose yourself to cold. So this is where, you know, Jad's heard me talk about this as well, but with any client, when we're dealing with working through any kind of discomfort, when we're trying to deal with working through these blocks or these limiting beliefs, it can be a very physically painful kind of process, especially depending on trauma that they've experienced in their past when we're using embodiment techniques that can be very triggering and can bring about some panic and some anxiety. So Often I work with people who are working with therapists and they're kind of dealing with that as well. That's always a really good setup. But what I have found is that you can either avoid or you can expose yourself to the stimulus. Now, there are times that it is safer, hands down, to avoid certain scenarios with you know family members, putting yourself back in an unsafe situation. However, when it comes to something like a panic attack where you know logically that you are not going to die, You are not actually having a heart attack, even though you feel like you are, especially if it's new to you. If you can put yourself in that situation by exposing yourself to a cold shower or an ice bath and learn to gain control over that mechanism in a safe and controlled environment, eventually you reach a point where when that panic starts to set in and you have that initial kind of (gasps) intake of breath, you know immediately how to go into that experience and expand into it instead of trying to contract away from it. And when you try to contract away from it, to me, that just makes the whole thing a lot worse. And so 
I went to the Wim Hof experience. It was actually really funny listening to Jad's um, bio. I always have a bit of a trick when people read my bio and I think, oh, like, you know, who are they talking about? Um, you know, I was talking about CrossFit and all these things, which I haven't been doing for a long time. My body's changed significantly over the last couple of years in terms of what kind of movement it responds to. But initially I went to a community ice bath at Fifth Element Wellness in Fitzroy. A lot of people are probably familiar with them. And um, the guy running the ice bath is a man named Mark Kluwer. And he's got a place. Mark's a tiger Kluwer. He's, um, we can tag him in the show notes if possible. So he still runs these experiences. He's got a dedicated place. He's built up at Elevated Springs. Absolutely fantastic. Really passionate in particular about working with men and men's group, helping them deal with their emotions. He's got an amazing story. And I went because I was interested in the recovery side of things. So dealing with inflammation to really work on performance gains and weight loss and body composition and that kind of thing. So I rock up to this event. Everybody else who's there is like hardcore CrossFitters, like super duper, like the gods, the people you think of when you think of CrossFitters, right? Which if you've ever actually gone to CrossFit, you know that that is like a very small percentage of the overall population. Um, and we go to get into this ice bath. And these are dudes that were standing around before talking about, oh, yeah, you know, I did double Murph this morning and these crazy ass workouts that they had done. And then it came time to actually get into the ice and they were petrified. And I was dead calm. I was excited about it. I'd gone there for this very physical benefit, but it had become really apparent to me doing the breath work as a group together before the ice bath, which is kind of the setup for it that there was actually something being tapped within me that was much, much bigger than what I had expected from the experience. And I just really had this image of connecting with this like Viking queen could handle the cold. Now I'm also, I'm from Nova Scotia, Canada. So, you know, I grew up swimming in quite cold water most of the year. It doesn't get particularly warm in our ocean there ever. So I'd had, you know, various levels of cold exposure throughout my life. But I found a stillness in that ice bath where I was watching everybody around me kind of like fighting it and wanting to kind of crawl out, moving their hands around, trying to find this comfortable position. And I just remember sinking so completely into my body in a way that I actually don't know that I had been present in my body for a very, very, very long time. Probably not since I was young when I was still dancing a lot. And so, you know, I've gone to tone down some inflammation so I can hit, hit the barbell harder the next day. And I've left with, with what was essentially a huge first step on kind of the spiritual journey that I've been on my whole life, but it's really ramped up over the last, you know, four years, I would say, as I've approached my forties, which to me is no great surprise because I call BS right away on the idea of this midlife crisis. I think it's a midlife revolution. I think it's an amazing, amazing opportunity to really get your head around things. And so it was huge. And so then I became really, you know, a big part of that community. And when you meet people who are Hoffers, you know, the, the cult of Wim Hof, it is incredible. You know, you've got the physical benefits of it that people certainly espouse, but the, the emotional benefits that I've seen, especially for women, because this isn't something that requires you leaving your home and finding time to do all these things. You can have a cold shower in the morning. It's very, very easy to fit into your day. So there's really no excuse for it physically to not do it. It becomes a mental battle. 
And so even now I play with it, you know, I have my warm shower, I turn it to cold, but then I challenge myself. Like I'll set the shower to freezing, freezing cold, which as we come into winter, it gets colder and colder because the pipes are colder. And I challenge myself to do things like step into that cold shower without flinching. And because I'm a nerd, I envision myself, I'm like, I'm being selected for the Viking army and only the strongest, the ones who do not flinch in the cold water will be, you know, and I go into that and I make it this game and I make it this big fantasy and I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, and I got to meet Wim very briefly at an event a few years ago and I kissed him and I hugged him and I said, you changed my <laughs> life. And he started crying and I started crying and I've got photos with him. Um, and people who've done it will understand that. And people who don't will think I sound mad and that's a-okay. Just try it. And you will understand what we're talking about. <laughs> I find a lot of what you just said resonates with me deeply. I haven't had a hot shower or anything beyond just straight out cold for, I don't know, two, maybe three years. I've experienced the shift, even just from a behavioral perspective. Like mm -hmm. I can be just a grumpy dude who's uh, got out of bed on the wrong side of a 20-sided dice you know like just there's nothing <laughs> good and I will get into a cold shower and it's like during the process of the shower I go oh oh yeah there I am and obviously a lot of what you said then resonates with Jad and I because one of the recurring themes of this podcast is we compassionately prod the concept that thoughts aren't real mm -hmm. so thoughts aren't truth mm -hmm. and so I Megan absolutely love the dance of all the little excuses that still pop up as I'm walking to the shower. I love mm -hmm. listening to those thoughts and going, yeah, okay, cool. But sorry, <laughs> you guys yeah. can sit in the back seat for a little while. My follow-up question is coming from a history of the fitness industry, myself, strength and conditioning coach, done all that sort of stuff. You mentioned that your body has shifted or your modality has shifted. I'm super interested in that. Did that integrate with this Wim Hof transformation or what? So um, in the lead up to this interview and I, you know, I'd sent some messages to Jad and I said, is there any themes that you really want to explore? Is there anything you kind of want me to prepare ahead of time? And he would have said kickboxing. Yeah. He never shot. Yeah. You know, it. I've got some notes here about yeah. kickboxing and, uh, and model, you know, model trains, different so recipes annoying. for kale, kale salads. Oh, yeah. no, the model trains. That's a different podcast entirely. I've got too much to say about that. To yeah, it in yeah, here. yeah. But one of the, I just have a subtle feeling that I'm not going to get much of a word in between you two today. Already <laughs> no, we'll, we'll... Oh, that's building that's fantastic yeah, i'm enjoying yeah, this a lot this, this whole thing's been set up to watch you step in and own your voice and to see you set your boundaries that's all this is that's right? why i'm having volume your, problems today this is this is your final test jad let's see if you pass it oh, um, I, I thought it was know, an intervention Bugger. okay well you know gosh we really should have gotten clear on this before we started um but so Jad sent me this thing and he said, you know, we'll probably ask you some questions about if you have a story of suffering that you want to share and how you've kind of moved through that. And my initial response, because I am a drama queen, was literally, you know, hand to forehead, like, oh, suffering only every day of my life. Yeah. Because that is legitimately like, <laughs> do, do you have a story of suffering? Yeah. Like, where do you want me to start? Because... Yeah. I feel like I suffer all the time, which is crap. You know, I don't, I don't. Right. But I have this perspective on it. 
but then, you know, when I kind of, you know, I got over myself a little bit and had a laugh and then I thought about it and I thought, you know, what has been the greatest source of suffering in my life? So I've had a history of drug addiction and alcoholism, which I'm happy to discuss. Um, Me too. Tick. I I knew we'd get on well. Yeah. I actually drink now, which is really interesting. So I'm no longer in, um, you know, a 12 step recovery. So that's been a whole other huge evolution, exploration of plant medicine and things, but hands down the biggest story of suffering that has been a theme in my life for as long as I can remember is my relationship with my body. Uh. That has colored every experience that I have ever had. Yeah. And so in terms of my body shifting over the last couple of years, I am, you know, on the one hand, if I try to assess myself objectively, I'm still very strong. I move every single day. That's that's a total non-negotiable for me. Um, do I look fit? Do I fit into the size? Do I see the certain number on the scale? No, 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 especially not after lockdown last year. Do I care? Also no. Yeah. So my acceptance of myself as I am is more, you know, stronger than it has ever been. And so my relationship with my body would also certainly be the area in my life where I have been able to show myself more compassion than I ever have before. And that's what I'm really passionate about with my coaching is helping other women get to this place where we start to understand that this whole paradigm we have of not being worthy based on how we look is a complete and total farce. It does not exist. It is made up and we perpetuate it on so many different levels. And that, you know, with all of this kind of stuff, um, especially over the last years, as I have become more and more connected to a really, really tight-knit group of women that I call my wolf pack. So these are the women that, you know, it's this handful of women that I know. I literally can call them up and be like, hey, you guys want to go run around naked and like smear ourselves with mud and howl at the full moon? They'll be like, yeah, what time? Which forest? Like these, you know, these are the women that I call to and they come and we have that kind of a bond together. And that's become more and more important to me in midlife. Um, the closer I get with them and the more I see how we are gradually becoming more and more able to love not only ourselves, but each other exactly as we are. Mm -hmm. It also brings up huge amounts of grief for the time of my life for, you know, the four decades that I spent not doing that. Mm -hmm. And it brings up anger towards myself about how much I perpetuated that system by purchasing women's magazines, by, you know, falling into this trap, into that trap, Um, you know, certain products I've recommended in the past, even when I was working as a fitness trainer, writing meal plans for fat loss, you know, and so it's this really, this very multidimensional thing for me that I have to work through on a daily, daily basis. And I did a post about this today on my Instagram and the messages that I have received from women have been incredible. It resonates with so many people when I talk about this. Um, and essentially what I'd said in this post, the, the backstory to that was I had a conversation and this may have to get edited out. 
pause here for a second in case, but I had a conversation <laughs> with a girlfriend, um, you know, a few months ago, and she was talking about having laser done on her body hair. Now, first and foremost, I'm a feminist and I believe in bodily autonomy, your body, your choice. You want to have laser, have laser. That's cool. I'm not judging that. I'm constantly questioning why we think we need it, but that's up to you. And she was talking about having laser and she was saying, you know, she's got, she's got three daughters. And I said, how do you, have you had this conversation with them? How do you explain to them that this is what you like, but this is not naturally what a woman's body looks like. We're not hairless. We don't look like Barbie dolls. And she was talking about this conversation that she has had with her kids. And she said to me, I just like knowing I can put my bathers on whenever I want and go to the beach. And I said to her, but so can I. And I said, and if I haven't taken care of that grooming situation and someone looks at that, if they're staring at my crotch on the beach and they find that offensive, that's on them. They can look away. And she had a real, like a moment of real, and this is a highly intelligent woman who started laughing and said, I've never thought of it that way. And we spend so much of our time, and not just women, men as well, believing that our bodies are in some way out there for public consumption and for the scrutiny and that we're allowed to comment on how other, it's just, it's just not on. Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. So. It's, a, it's a fascinating collision of psychology and sociology. Absolutely. Um, and I think, uh, you know, another recurring theme of this podcast is the interrogation of absurdities, the compassionate yeah. interrogation of absurdities or ha oh, habituations through trying to use mindfulness and, and compassion practices to formulate critical insight, critical yeah. reflection, critical thinking. Everything that you said, and by the way, there'll be nothing edited out because no one can be angry at, uh, you know, koala ears down at the beach. And if they are, I know. call it my fine Canadian beaver pelt, just being out. And I, you know only, I only recently heard koala ears and I, I fell over in the car park after surfing with this girlfriend. It was like, it's my koala ears. Yeah. And I was laughing hysterically. Yeah. It was yeah. like I've made Jad laugh at my fine Canadian I've, beaver I've not, pelt. I've not heard that expression either. It's it's, it's I think I made it. It's coming into its winter coat now, so you yeah, know yeah. it'll Look, be exceptional very soon. If you're the sort of human being that get gets mad at that stuff, yeah, um, you know that's on you. Yeah, that's your yeah, problem. Yeah. yeah, the invitation yeah. is to go forth and multiply, um, and no <laughs> doubt they would be the sort of people that would be listening to this podcast. So well, let's let's say this is a, a koala ear and beaver safe space, <laughs> but it is an interesting thing <laughs> to interrogate false mm. ideations to interrogate quote unquote accepted beliefs so i'm going to formulate a question around that you mentioned that you you work with coaching you develop skill sets no doubt how how with your clients how do you encourage the the compassionate interrogation of absurdity i think the first step for most of the women that i work with and this has really been um, last year and this year were really the first time that I gave myself in my professional life the permission to fully step into my authenticity as a coach and to really kind of follow the threads and work the way that I want to work. 
um, and to start bringing in all of these different, you know, I just, I moved beyond this paradigm of this is what a coach does and this is how I have to do it. And I started to give myself that freedom. And of course, as a result, I've started to attract these women and men, but mostly women who are ready to do this transformational work on a much deeper, a much deeper level. Um, and so they come to me and this certainly, I'm sure, I, I know it's, I'm sure it's Jad's experience with some of his clients. These clients come to us and they're so terrified of suffering. They're so scared of what they're going to find out when they do this. And then, you know, when we start to look at how their life is at the moment, are you happy? Are you fulfilled? No. And they can't put a name on it. Sometimes that's because they don't know what it is that's missing. More often than not, especially by the time we've hit midlife, we know what it is that we're missing, but we're terrified to name that out loud because we don't feel deserving or we're scared or we're scared of what we're going to have to give up to achieve that. And, you know, giving it a name, starting to give it the air to breathe, it takes on a life of its own and it becomes this huge process. And to some extent, once you're in this process, it's very hard to extricate yourself from it. Mm. And I talk about that a lot as well. You know, we do the work. We're all doing the work, the shadow work, the hard work, the good work, the compassionate work. And for so long, I, I kept thinking like, oh, I'm doing the work, I'm doing the work, the work is going to end at some stage. And now you're like, oh, no, it just like gets bigger and scarier and harder, actually, you just keep leveling up. And so the first thing I really encourage, I guess, women to do is, is to really start to, to get into their body, um, which is a very, very cautious approach that I take to that. I am what I would consider a trauma-informed coach. However, I am not a therapist and I am not a trauma specialist. And I'm very, very well aware that asking someone to drop into their body is often a very terrifying prospect because our bodies do not feel like a safe space to be because they have been a place that has been violated. It's been judged you know, by other people and by us. You know? Um, it's been a source of hatred, of pain, emotional and physical pain, all of those kinds of things. So that starts with some really just gentle embodiment practices is usually where I would get them to begin. And so that brings in the real kind of mindfulness element. So using techniques like body scan and just actually starting to go through your body and see like, where am I holding tension? When I breathe into my body, where does that breath go? Does it stop in my lungs? Can I expand my belly? Um, and, and that right there, so many women, I'll say to them, you know, do you breathe into your belly? And they go, uh-huh. And then we observe them physically breathing and they don't. And I get them to, you know, interlace their fingers on their, on top of their stomach and see if, they're, if their fingers are kind of moving further away as they're breathing. And again, this isn't just women, but so many of us are so used to holding our stomachs in as this kind of protective or defensive mechanism, you know, certain... I spent most of my life holding my stomach in because I was trying to squeeze myself into some kind of sausage casing of pants <laughs> that, you know, were two sizes too small because if I wore that size, I was worth more in the world, you know, and, and just that narrative that played on loop that to start to encourage ourselves to actually relax our physical selves and allow ourselves to just exist in this moment exactly as we are completely imperfect. You know, I've got a bung knee on one side that gets worse all the time and I'm stiff in the mornings and my hip feels weird and, you know, my neck's always off to one side and I can feel the wobbly bits here and the wobbly bits there. 
So the very first thing we start with is just getting into that state and allowing yourself very slowly and very gently to continue to expand into that experience because the, the, the gut instinct for most people, the immediate reaction is to contract, to start contracting. So we really use the breath to continue to expand into that situation. And when I talk about this process of that, that might take somebody weeks, mm. months mm. to get to a place where they can do that. Some people, it happens in five minutes. It happens in one session. But that timeline is very, very hard to predict. Mm. So that would be where I start mm. with that. It's um, a fabulous doorway. The entrance to the corridor, you used a particular style of language there, which I just love with trauma is that you, you were using invitational language. You were asking yes. because my heckles always go up dealing professionally with trauma as I do with, uh, I, I like to refer to them as my incarcerated learners <laughs> in a youth yeah. prison. Um, but I see that mistake all the time. And I see people with lots of letters after their, after, after their names, I see um, doctors and I see, pe see people forget that aspect of allowing agency or allowing someone to feel that sense of agency that unfortunately lies at the core of the traumatic event you know, mm. control choice agency is taken away. I'm curious at still poking at the C word, which we love in this, in this podcast, Megan, with mindful self-compassion, which is more our genre of teaching, the mm -hmm. skill sets allow the practitioner to mine more deeply, more safely. There's mm -hmm. no, I'm telling you what to experience. There's only here are the tools no. to mine so we find in our experience that that, that self-compassion is what allows us to surge deeper and feel safety and agency. I'm wondering within your practice or your experience, how has compassion helped you to go deeper? Because you mentioned earlier, you caught, there's tendencies to get angry at that person that you were. My translation of that is, oh, don't get angry at that person because that person just didn't have the skill sets that you have Absolutely. accrued now. So yeah. I'm wondering, how does compassion help either yourself or your client's mind more deeply? So I think the compassion and, and anger for me really at times coexist. And so anger, when I talk about anger, so this is not, I'm not talking about lashing out in anger or frustration is what that is more for me. You know, I've got two, I've got two, two young boys who I homeschooled for the year last year. There was many outbursts of, of what I would describe as anger that, you know, we're coming from this place of I need to do what I want, you know, this, this kind of stuff. But this anger that I'm talking about has actually been an incredibly beautiful gift. And this kind, this kind of goes back to that, you know, the saying about if, if you're not, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. There's a lot of things to be angry about in this world. And I don't shy away from that. And I think, I think in my work, encouraging this compassion and letting go of these emotions you know, keep the vibe high at times there can be a lot of spiritual bypassing that goes on and women again in particular we are told from a very young age be nice don't be angry don't let that out swallow it down and we do and we swallow it down and we wash it down with pills and alcohol and food and all sorts of other numbing and blocking behaviors and so there's this real progression that can happen when we start to get in touch with that. And it, it is terrifying. It can feel really, really, really out of control at the time. But the compassion for me comes back to, and I guess in my own practice, when I become aware that I really need to bring some compassion to myself, 
you know, I'm being really hard on myself. And I've, I've gotten very good at starting to identify these narratives. So words that I'm looking out for with my self-talk, always and never. If I hear the word always this, never that, that's a falsity. Because there's nothing that I could possibly be describing that is always the way it's happening. You know, my husband always does this. My kids never do. That's not true. Mm. My kids may not frequently pick up their room the first time I ask them to, <laughs> but they occasionally do, right? So, you know, I've just disproven that. If you want to go back to my, the, the kind of logical background of things. And so that's where I really just start to draw back. And my compassion really comes into play when I just can observe myself. In that glorious messiness. And it is often, um, for me, it's almost a disembodied experience at times where I really kind of pull myself back. And it's like I'm looking down on this, this, you know, this crazy human version of Megan. Um, And I I talk about, you know, look at that Megan. Oh, that Megan is so mad. She's so frustrated. And oh, that Megan's this and that Megan's that. And that's really funny to me. So I'll start laughing as soon as I start talking about myself and this bizarre third person. It brings some levity to the situation. And then I start to ask myself, what do you need right now? What do you need right now in this moment The question for me stops there. The question used to be, what do I need right now to feel better? What do I need right now to change the circumstance? What do I need right now to not be feeling the way that I currently am? But it stops. So sometimes the answer to that question, what do you need right now, is I need to let myself feel really angry for a while. Mm. Sometimes, often the answer I get is you need to drink some water. Seriously, you are so dehydrated. Like I am just chronically dehydrated. And that's so funny. And it sounds so simple. But that act of going and getting a glass of water in that moment as the next right thing to do becomes a real ritual of bringing myself back to self care in this really tiny, small way. I don't have time to go run a bubble bath. I don't have time to go for a big walk. I don't have time to you know, and self-care for me can be like doing the Excel spreadsheet that I put up doing your taxes can be a great act of self-care. Um, you know, putting, doing these things that you've been putting off that, you know, you kind of have to do at some point, all those things can be great, but keeping it very small, very simple, and just allowing myself to observe whatever is coming up for me in that moment. And the only commitment that I'm making to myself is to observe and to continue to inquire Mm. Mm. and that's it so I don't have this big expectation of oh I'm gonna feel joyous in 15 minutes because that's not that the suffering I'm not scared of suffering like I used to be yes I do avoid it obviously especially physical pain still not a fan you know like nobody likes to feel incapacitated physically especially when you're someone whose movement's really important for me I was a dancer for a long time when I was younger um but just that question what do you need right now Mm. what do you need right now And so many clients that I work with, when I say to them, what do you, and you know, in the beginning of the relationship, until they've learned the skill set, I am the person that's holding the space and asking those questions. And the answer I get 99% of the time is, I don't know. No one's ever asked me that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. That was, uh, that had many ingredients that we (laughs) regularly cook up in our podcast stir fry here. 
I'm hearing a couple of things. If you don't mind, I'm about to reflect them back. Sure. See, invitational language. I'm learning. I love it. But I'm hearing a couple of things. Number one, that compassion sometimes might be allowing yourself to feel what you bloody feel. Yeah. It might be allowing yourself to feel anger because guess what? Mindfulness is about being with what's going on. Okay, I'm angry now. Now, Mm. I heard you also skillfully differentiate between I am not anger, I'm just angry. Yes. So what a wonderful decision to sort of disassociate is the wrong word, but to move yourself into a position to have critical insight and look at that, Megan. And I loved it because I heard a compassionate sort of aside you, you weren't going oh that bloody you know Megan's angry you were saying oh look at my, look at that yeah. Megan look at that just a lovely thing now I also heard there somewhat of a pattern interrupt because yeah. so often when we have the rich and compelling narrator and writer director Quentin Tarantino up here in our brain writing all these <laughs> compelling thoughts and scripts and handing them to us Sometimes the best gift is just pause and go, hang on, hang on. I don't have to, I don't have to get on that roller coaster. No. And I love the idea of inquiring, what do I need? Jad and I sometimes in working with, with teaching specifically men have really tried to focus on the idea or building up the skill sets of skillful expression of need under duress. Yeah. How does that manifest for you? Because I know that as human beings under duress, we've all been in the meat grinder and in an argument, we suddenly say things and things fly out of our mouths that we really don't mean. How do you work with all of these skill sets, these wonderful skill sets that you're talking about? How do you work with maintaining them under duress? And how do you help your clients to keep that mindfulness in the meat grinder? So I think at the beginning, um, when people are really just learning these techniques and it's, you know, again, I work with people, most of my clients are kind of in their forties or beyond. And this work can be very, very new to them, you know, Um, which is both super exciting to me to see so many people trying to, and Jad and I have joked about this many times, you know, we really romanticize us kids that grew up in the eighties, like, Oh, ha ha. My parents had no idea where I was all day long. You know, like we were doing all these dangerous things and like, totally. it's, you know, Oh, we had so much freedom. And then they and used now, to drive me home when they were hammered. You know, <laughs> and we're like, Oh, the good old days. And now I'm working with this clientele where I'm like, Oh, like we actually have a little bit of collective trauma from the fact that we were actually quite underparented and oh, yeah, fairly yeah. neglected a lot yeah, of the time. We're, you know? we're, all, we're all damaged goods. Yeah. It's, well, and, but like, and we, and like my children will have, you know, I have their therapy fund that I joke about. Right. And I have this list that my 11 year old keeps that, you know, we have, the, I'm like, put that on your therapy list. And those are the good things he's going to tell his therapist about his mom someday you know the time she really tried because I understand enough about the human condition to know that we're all and so what I'm seeing is that we're actually starting to acknowledge this trauma and this grief and this anger and when I say everybody has trauma I'm not saying that as a dismissive like oh everybody's got trauma get over it Mm. saying everybody's got trauma we need to start dealing with this collectively as a society we need to start working with this yeah and so I've got all these people you know, they, their, their neural pathways, that groove is so greased with the patterning that they inherited from their parents, from society, 
intergenerationally, you know, spiritually, I believe very much in terms of the epigenetic expression of trauma and all of these things that we oh, bring yeah. with us oh, yeah. from this world to this world, most of which we never become aware of. Um, I feel very blessed to be constantly becoming more aware of, of mm. my own patterns and, and where they actually come from. So in the beginning, what I would be asking my clients to start to work towards feeling comfortable naming is really being able to express in those situations when things are heated, I hear you, I want to have this discussion, but I really need mm. to take a few minutes for myself right now. So that would be, that's the very first step would be to be able to ask, to just say like, time out. I need a break because mm. there is no shame. You know, I do that with my children. That was something my mom. So my mom was a psychotherapist, which I had very little appreciation of when I was growing up. And she was like, what's your inner child telling you? And you know, all these things. I just thought she was wacko half the time. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, now yeah. Like I call my mom all the time. I'm like, mom, I'm so sorry. And like, God, I love you so much. And like, you know, and it's been this incredible reinvigoration of our relationship as two adult females. It's been amazing. Um, there's nothing wrong with taking a time out. And she used to tell me that when, when the kids were young, she was like, lock yourself in the bathroom. There's no shame in that. There's no shame in stepping away from the heated argument. Now, most people will find themselves if I, they'll say, oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't leave this and it turned into this big screaming match and, and then someone's sleeping on the sofa, then I stormed out, or, you know, <laughs> then I made bad choices. And it, it escalates very quickly because that is our patterning. That's what most of us know how to do. And most of us in that situation of duress, we work on overpowering the other person's energy. That's what we attempt to do, especially parents with children. That's another thing. And when I say all this, I am by no means a parenting expert. I, I do the wrong thing all the time with my kids, but I'm constantly trying not to. So my job as their mother is not to match their energy in an argument. It is to ground my energy, to model for them a mirror of how they can maybe start to shift their energy a little bit so that we can actually get to the root of what's happening. Mm. We need to do that as adults as well. Mm. Because most of us don't know how. We, they yell, we yell, they yell, we yell. And again, that's where those words always, never, always, never. That's where that, those words and the accusations. And then, you know, again, for so many of us, well, three years ago, on my birthday, you said you'd take me out for cake and they didn't have cake. And we start dredging up all this evidence, all this evidence that doesn't belong in this situation. So that would be the first thing. Start asking for a time up. Yeah. Learn to recognize in yourself. Learn to feel when, where your tipping point is, because it's different for all of us. I'm very switched on, you know, and for me, especially if I feel myself operating from a place of shame, I need to move away because nothing good is going to continue. If I continue to operate from a place of shame. And for me, shame is sick in my tummy, hot in my face. Oh. Very easy for me to identify very similar for many people, but not the same. So I would encourage everybody when they become aware of a feeling of shame, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, did I do the wrong thing? So just saying those words, did I do the wrong thing? My face goes hot, my stomach flips. That is so inherent to my experience. So shame, the reason I really, that's when you need to walk away is because that does not belong to you. That's not yours, which I'll get to in a minute. So this is the kind of the next technique. So that would be the first thing. Ask to step away. 
come back to the table when you've had a chance to drink some water, take a few breaths, go do some star jumps, punch a heavy bag if you, if you need to expel some of the energy, you know? Now, the temptation here <clears throat> or the challenge with doing that is that so often we walk away from the situation and then the narrative, we start to convince ourselves that we don't deserve to have this conversation. Oh, I'm just going to let it go. It's just, it's easier. And it is easier. In many ways, it is easier to stay in a dissatisfying relationship for a long period of time until suddenly it's not, you know? And so we start to choose that. So that's really about, and this is, again, you need both parties willing to do this. So if you're saying to someone in that situation, I need this, I need that, and they're refusing to honor or to hear what it is that you were very respectfully requesting from them, that's a little bit of a red flag. Now, it's not, you know, oh, they always never, you know, don't go into that. But we do need to start becoming aware of this because not everybody is going to be willing to start to move in to using these modalities and these methodologies that we are trying to develop within ourselves. Mm. And that can cause issues. So you kind of start to become aware of it. So respectfully asking, you know, again, going back to the basics very much so, asking them to use I statements. I'm feeling really this right now. And then stop talking so you don't add the because you are doing this or because you did that, you know, to so just leave that blame for now. Say it in your head. I do. But, you know, I don't voice it out loud. I literally in my head, I'm like, stop talking. Okay, now you shut up. Just stop talking. Yeah. I'm feeling really overwhelmed. I don't need to explain that in the moment. Yeah. And then what I ask people to do, and especially when this is very new work for them, because it can feel so unsafe and so scary in the moment is to use a bit of a technique I kind of call relationship freeze frame that I've developed where I ask people to really step away from the situation and I ask them to put their detective hat on. And so you, you pause the scene in your head. So you start to replay the argument and you essentially let the, let the scene run right until the point that it starts to really spiral out of control. So, you know, the point at which the argument over whose turn it was to take the bins out has started to become the argument over how I do all the work and you're a terrible person and, you know, like really completely off the topic of where you began the conversation. And you kind of pause it there and you walk in and you start to ask yourself, so what did they actually say? What were the actual words that were spoken? What were the words that I actually spoke? You get very, very clinical in this approach. I actually ask people to see themselves wearing like the old timey detective jackets, like an old PI. Again, that makes them laugh. It brings some levity to a difficult emotional situation. It's a bit funny. You can put your detective hat on while you do it. I have one. I'm not joking. Um, you know, a bit of role play kind of thing. And you start to observe what actually was said. And then the next question you ask is, what did I make that mean? So if you say, for example, so what was actually said was, oh, I took the bins out all last week. It was your turn. That's all that was said. What you made it mean was that you're a lazy person who does, and that's old programming coming in. That's not what's happening in the situation, but this is where you are operating from those old patterns and from those neural pathways that have been running on loop, you know, since your childhood, probably. So what did you start to make that mean? And then you start to become really aware of how those narratives are creeping in. 
And that puts you back into that kind of observational situation where you take that step back and you could take the emotion out of it to some extent. I'm not saying be cold about your approach to it necessarily, but there is a point at which we need to start to become aware of what it is that triggers us, how we fly off the handle. And so those would be kind of the steps that I would walk through is encouraging people to take a time out, starting to become aware of when it is that you're being triggered, working on your language. And this is where I get people to do a lot of mirror work, where they speak to themselves in the mirror and say, you know, I would love it if you could. I really need this. I'm feeling that because we are so not used to owning those feelings. And owning that experience, so many of us feel so much shame when we are naming things. Um, for me, you know, I don't know if it's because I'm Canadian or what it is, but I do the whole, um, you know, oh, just I was just thinking, um, actually, it would be like super great if maybe, um, if it's not a big problem, if you could maybe um, sometimes, and all of that power that you brought into that situation has been completely dissipated, and you need to own that. Because what you're asking for is reasonable and you deserve to have it. Mm. I feel like that went completely off on a total tangent there. No, I really, I really dig That's this. Um, being, a, being a lifetime fan of Marshall Rosenberg's work, um, nonviolent communication. Yep. I, I remember when I first learned that stuff, I, I use that professionally on a daily basis with the marginalized cohort that I work with. But in relationships and parenting, observation, feeling, need, request has been a game changer for me. Yeah. Um, but like you said, what I'm hearing is you are using, uh, applying a lot of skill sets there to manufacture distance between stimulus and response. Yeah. And, you know, Jad and I have spoken about that ad nauseum, the nature of how we communicate. I love the idea of having a detective jump in the middle and go, look, let's clinically examine what the stimulus was, not yeah. what you think it is, not, not what, what you made it, not into. what Quentin's rewriting the scripts, you know, let's just sit with it for a little while and consider what we need. Wow. What a lovely thing to give to yourself. Yeah. Consider what you might need before we apply that response. I think those are incredible skill sets. That was a, that was not a tangent at all. That was lovely. I was just struck by how frustrating it is that we're just, and we've discussed this again on the show many times before, that we're not taught this sort of stuff, that this is stuff yeah. that we're just, it's, yeah. it's just assumed that it gets passed on from parent to child, that you somehow absorb this ability to know how to ask for, for things and to, 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 you know, to declare boundaries and, and all of that sort of stuff. And you touched on before is when you start developing these skills, a grief sometimes comes in because you realize of all the, the sort of missed opportunities to use them. And I was just reflecting then on, you know, assertiveness and stuff like that is so critical to getting what you need in life in particularly mm. in a career sense. And yeah. it's something that's just either taught by your parents or you don't have it. There's no one else there to kind of, you know, sometimes a good mentor, a good teacher can help you along with that. But um, you know, it's it's amazing how much that contributes to disparity. I think in in on a social sort of level as well. Just the ability to to know how to communicate your needs is, and you see that with so many people where they're 
the problems they're getting themselves into, and I'm sure, Michael, you'd, you'd have very first-hand experience of this in the work you do, the frustration that builds because they're not able to communicate what they really want or need leads then to primitive ways of approaching that. And, and we're animals. We're, we're animals where, yeah. you know, lashing out in anger or fleeing from a situation or freezing was a practical strategy from an evolutionary perspective. But in our modern day lives where we need to live with complex relationships over time, you know, thumping someone over the head with a club or, you know, freaking out <laughs> and running away is not so practical, but we're just not no. talking things. And this is where things like coaching and therapy come into to play and mindfulness and all this sort of stuff that we're so immersed in. But it's it's just, it sort of struck me then. I was almost getting kind of frustrated as I listened to it. Like, why didn't I have those freaking skills when I was younger? Like, yeah. I, I do think that it's, um, you know, I think that's one area where the luck of the draw really with your parents really comes into play, mm. you know, and again, and that does create this huge disparity amongst children who are being taught these, um, you know, emotional intelligence and these kind of skills from a very young age. And, you know, and it, it's always funny to me because like I said, my mom was a therapist. She was very much actively constantly trying to teach me these skills. because She certainly was not taught these from her parents. Her relationship with her parents was very old school, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of love there. She really was, I mean, she was never really mother. And so she mm. had a lot of doubts about her ability to mother me, um, which I just wrote a poem about it the other day. And it was incredibly cathartic because my mom, my mom taught me all the most important things that I need in this life in so many ways. I didn't understand them at the time. Mm. I wasn't yet ready to start applying them at the time. But one thing that really does give me hope here is, you know, I was invited by my children's school to come and speak a few weeks ago. And the, the two topics that I actually was asked to talk about were focus and flow and self-monitoring. And so these are, you know, curriculum criteria and they have all these checklists. Like I can self-monitor, I can assess my own work. I can do this. I can ask for help. And I said to the teacher who knows me quite well, I said, do I have like free reign with this? And she was like, yep, just, you know, approach this however you want. So with the focus and flow stuff, we talked about, you know, distractions and some kind of really practical things. We talked about the chair procrastination, another favorite of mine. And, you know, you've got this task you have to complete. You've made it into something much bigger now because you've added this hour of thinking about it, worrying about it, stressing about it. Now it's this huge task. When we came to the self-monitoring side of things, I actually took it in a really different direction. Imagine that, right? Yeah. Um, and what I talked to these year five and six, so 11 and 12 year olds about was getting comfortable with being vulnerable. Mm. Because one of the self-monitoring criteria was I can ask for help when I don't understand something. And so I got the kids to close their eyes. And I said, how many of you always ask for help when you don't understand something? And like one hand goes up. And I said, how many of you find it really scary to ask for help, whether it's with your schoolwork or with something at home or in a relationship with your friends or, and all the hands go up, right? And for some of these kids, and the reason I always get kids to do this with their eyes closed is because at that age, certainly they're always like glimpsing around to see who else is putting their hands up or not putting their hands up and they'll copy that. And that's, that's pretty normal at that stage of social development. And then we talked about why, why is it so hard for us to ask for help? And I was really clear with them. I said, you guys, my job is helping adults who haven't learned this skill. And if one of you can walk out of this classroom today, taking a little bit of this on board, then that, you know, I'm chuffed. That makes me really, really happy to know that we're starting to see these changes at a much, much earlier level. And there is, you know, 
Within both traditional schools, again, varies widely, incredibly from school to school, but certainly with unschooling and homeschooling and different things, we at least have this awareness of these skills of resiliency, mindfulness. You know, I've taught numerous mindfulness classes there. I've taught them for the teachers there at the school, providing support last year through, you know, lockdown and having to be online all the time. And those were things I was invited to do because the school where my kids go, you know, which is, is a public school, it's very small. Um, but it's not a private school, it's not a specialized school, they recognize the inherent value in giving children these skills at a much, much, much younger age. Mm. Um, And so that was really exciting and really interesting, Mike, that you brought up your nonviolent communication and how we're modeling that kind of thing. I was having a conversation with someone not long ago because uh, my husband and I have been talking about it and I was talking about it with his girlfriend because I worked I worked on a psych ward basically for about four years when I was younger. It was one of my summer jobs. And so um, dealing with a lot of clients who um, had criminal backgrounds, uh, many who had committed, you know, quite horrific crimes, but they weren't in the, in the penal system because they had been deemed insane. So they'd been sent here instead. So it was a very high security environment. And obviously you're taught all sorts of things about how to, you know, how to open your body, how to use your body in a way to start to shift the energy in a confrontation. And my husband, when he was younger, worked as a security guard. So they're taught exactly the opposite. How do you make Mm. yourself look bigger? You fold your arms. So you don't fold your arms like this. You fold your arms like this, you know, And, and people obviously can't see me, but you know, you make yourself big, you stand up, you use this big booming voice and you really get in touch with using your physicality. And we learned that in martial arts. You learn that in dance. It's Mm. different ways of communicating. But what started to strike me as I was talking to my friend was that, you know, I know in that situation when I'm in a confrontation with someone, I am incredibly aware of how I am holding my body. I am aware of where my hands are in particular. Am I looking defensive? Do I look like I'm open to having this conversation right now? In particular with children, you know, I'd sit on the floor with my kids when they were in the midst of a tantrum, not next to them, not touching them, but I would just come down to their level so that I wasn't this huge, big, imposing, scary looking person standing over them. And you learn to de-escalate or or regulate, I guess, your emotions by using a physical stance. And what really struck me as I was walking through this conversation was that we don't do that with ourselves. And I was like, wow, like we really need to be trained Mm -hmm. in nonviolent crisis intervention just to use with our own selves, you know, and that goes back to that idea of expansion and contraction that I talked about back at the beginning, which is something else I'm really just passionate about because I use that terminology on so many levels, but when we experience a physical contraction, that is a red hot clue. Mm to follow that thread, to see why that is happening. Are you protecting yourself from something? Is that an old pattern that's emerging? Do you not feel safe? And what's really hard for people to start to get their head around is that, look, I may have an experience at times if my husband and I are having an argument and I find myself physically shrinking. Now I can tell you, I'm not scared of my husband physically Mm. at all. There's not even a part of me that believes he would ever be capable of physical violence towards me or my children. That has not been my experience at all in this relationship, but it has been my experience in the past. And until you start to become aware of where your physicality is showing you what's actually happening in your mind, 
you're going to miss all of these very painful, <laughs> but very transformative opportunities to start to expand into that experience and to open yourself. And that goes back to, I remember someone telling me for years in yoga, I really struggled with any kind of heart opening or throat opening or backbend postures. I would panic. I would just go into this pan. I'm flexible. So it wasn't a question of discomfort or feeling like my back was going to go out. I was able physically to do them. And then I remember someone telling me at this yoga workshop I did about the vulnerability of backbends and basically saying, if you think about being in that wide open position, you were exposing your heart, you were exposing your throat, and you were exposing your soft underbelly. Mm. And the only times that we do that, or we do that in sex, which is an incredibly vulnerable and intimate position to be in. So it feels really weird when we're doing it outside of that kind of scenario. And if you think about, you know, our evolutionary history, where we came from, if you were sleeping out on the savannah in the night, you probably were not lying there spread eagled on your back, like come and get me saber too. You know, <laughs> we, you would have drawn yourself into a protective mechanism, but we're still doing that now in 2021 because of the stuff that we're reading on social media or the stuff that we're seeing on the news or the stuff that we're discussing with our friends or our family or the vaccine, you know, whatever it is that's triggering us in that moment. And so this is where we can change our emotions and that will alter our physical state. But many times I think we actually have to tap into and alter the physical state to allow the expansion of the emotional situation that you're in. Mm. And again, this moves into the realm of acquisition and application of skill sets, yeah. um, ideally best done through teaching and mentoring that are not necessarily present or certainly not prevalent in society. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier education. We'll often say to children, you need to concentrate, just concentrate, focus but we don't teach them how to concentrate yeah. or how to focus. Uh, there's a recurring theme of this podcast. I'm interested and I'm going to pose the question to you, Megan. How, as a result of this journey you've been on, I'm wondering how has your inner dialogue, your inner narrator, has that voice shifted and has it taken more of a compassionate tone to it? What's been your experience there? Oh, completely different. Like it might, so my inner dialogue now, um, most of the time it, you know, it defaults to the old narratives frequently, but I'm able to kind of identify and pull myself out of that situation very quickly these days. So, you know, the biggest things I would notice and what you touched on this briefly is I say things, you know, Oh, I feel this. I feel tired. I feel sad. I feel happy. No, I am. So I've really eliminated a lot of, I am statements because I am not any of those things. I mean, the only, the only statement I can make in this moment sitting here right now that I know to be true is I am. And even that you could question, <laughs> like, are you, you know, do, <laughs> why, where's your evidence on this physical body? You know, like, and you know, that's a whole other topic. Um, and so really starting to shift that I feel. And so for me, things like, you know, I'm for years and years and I had a real, I had a real inherent perfectionism mm. as a child, which I'm really, I think, just in my own personal work, starting to get to some of the really deep shadow work that's starting to uncover where some of that stuff comes from. 
And, you know, it's blowing my mind. And I quite often come out of some of these kind of hypnotic states or these meditative states, or, you know, I'll drum myself into kind of a shamanic journey kind of thing sometimes to explore some of this stuff. And sometimes I get this answer, but like, why I, why am I this way? And I'm like, really? That was the thing that made me like, you know, like I have, I have real issues around abandonment, which stem from the birth of my sibling. And I loved my sibling. I did not love not being the center of attention anymore. And that's quite, you know, that's embarrassing for me to admit. And I know logically, but this is, you know, this is a very common experience. And this is actually something there's a lot of research emerging now about sibling, sibling rivalry and the impacts of that kind of stuff. So mm. for years though, and this is where, you know, I have been diagnosed as an adult with ADHD. I don't take medication for that. But one of the things that really struck me when I started to learn about that was that for young women, how it often manifests and the reason it gets missed is it manifests in this perfectionism mm. because it comes out in this need to control. And the need to control and the desire to control is almost always a direct response to trauma that you've experienced mm. at a time that you had control taken from you. So now as a way to try to fix the situation, we're grasping onto straws. And I don't consider myself a controlling person. I'm like, oh yeah, no, I go with the flow. Anyone who knows me, if I say that to them, they're like, uh, no, you're a control freak, you know? And I have to, I sit with that all the time. And then they present this evidence to me and I'm like, oh, that is kind of controlling. But I had this internal dialogue from the time that I was very, very young. That was like, you're so stupid. Like nothing was ever good. Enough. I can remember when I was probably seven years old and I was doing advanced spelling. So I was doing, you know, the spelling classes for kids much older and I got one word wrong on my spelling test. And I cried about that four days, <laughs> days and days. And that's a completely illogical response. The suffering that that caused me was very, very real to me in that moment. And it would be things like, you know, I'd be trying to tie my shoe and I'd struggle and I'd end up taking my shoe off and biffing it against the wall or something like that. Or I'd spill water and I'd be like, oh, you're such an idiot. Like I just was, I was constantly so self-critical. I don't think I really said a kind word to myself until probably very recently mm. in my adult life. I heard other people saying it. I think I thought I was saying nice things to myself, but it wasn't until later. I was like, oh no, it was actually just external validation from everyone mm. and using very stupid measurements. So, you know, the number on the scale, the score on the test, the, you know, the job that I got, the pay rate I was on, you know, all of those things that I've come to realize since don't matter at all in terms of my actual happiness and fulfillment in this world. And so now I'm really conscious of this because this is actually something that I became really aware as a, as a probably teenager, I guess I would hear my mom saying, Oh, you're such an idiot to herself. So I started to observe her negative self-talk. Yeah. Um, and she was calling me on mine all the time. She's probably going to listen to this episode. I love you, mom. She would call me on it all the time. And then I would observe her doing it to herself. And I'd be like, okay, well, here's the connection, mm -hmm. you know? And so I became very hyper-conscious of the language that I was using to speak to myself. And, you know, is this how I would speak to my children? Is this how I would speak to one of you? Mm -hmm. If you spill water right now, would I say to you like, oh, you're such an idiot. You're so clumsy. Well, no, because I'm not a jerk. Mm -hmm. well, so why would I speak to myself that way? And so 
on the very best of days. So, you know, when my bucket's very full and I've had water and I've had enough sleep and I'm feeling really good, if something like that happens, I'm like, oops, I spilled the water and it's a complete and total non-event. On the days where I'm feeling a little bit more frazzled, the self-talk now would be more like, you know, whoops, that was a dumb thing to do. But it's not, I'm this or you're that. Like, it's not this big personal attack on my character or my essence or my core. The event or the moment isn't you. Exactly. And it just becomes mm. this, it's not defining. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't take me off on this huge tangent of self-hatred. And then I think with, with a lot of the self-talk, especially around things like, you know, the number on the scale or the size that I wear or body image in particular, I just really, I just shut it down immediately in a, in a way that probably doesn't feel very loving or compassionate in the moment, but it's kind of one of those times where the discipline of just completely refusing to engage with that dialogue and going like, so, you know, the phrase I shout, and I'll shout it out loud, I will do this in public at the shops, much to the delight of my husband. But I will say, not today, Satan. Mm. You know, when I hear those thoughts, I'm just like, no. Like, I just, there are areas when it comes to things like that, that I refuse to give any mental space to whatsoever. Now, that's a hard, you know, you've got to flex that muscle over and over and over again until that starts to create the new neural pathways. It's a process. It's science, though, so you can do it. Mm -hmm. Whereas with other things, when I hear that self-talk or that criticism, and this is where with shame and guilt. So shame to me is something that doesn't belong to me. I've inherited that from someone else. Guilt is different in that guilt to me is something I feel when I've done something that I know on some level probably wasn't the best thing to do. Now, guilt is an opportunity to check in with that and be like, ooh, you know, and with my children, for example, I apologize to my kids. Frequently. And I remember another mom saying, well, you can't apologize to your kids. That puts them in power. And I was like, but I'm wrong. Like I did the wrong thing. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't, you know, and I remember saying to my son at one point, you know, I'm really sorry. I shouted at you like that. And he said, oh, you know, but I made you angry. And I said, you can't make me anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You don't have the power to change my state. You don't have the power to make me do anything. That is not your fault. Did your behavior challenge me? Yes. Was I frustrated? Yes, but that's still on me, you know? And I can't expect him to take ownership of that. And that's, that's hard to do. That's a very confronting process. So, you know, sometimes the self-talk crops up and I'm like, oh, what's going on here? Where's this coming from? Why am I experiencing this? Because it is now not thankfully the loop that I run on all the time, mm. you know? And I challenge those thoughts, all right, what's your evidence? And the other thing I ask my clients and I ask my children, and this is very simple, is this a fact or is it a feeling? Mm. And if it's a fact, you have to have 100% proof that that statement is true. So if I'm saying, you know, God, I'm just a terrible person. Is that true all the time? It's clearly not true all the time. I do lots of good things. Mm. So I know for I'm in a feeling. You know, and that's a really quick way to start to differentiate between those two states. You know, is this a fact? Is it real? Nothing's real. I mean, there's the big answer to everything, really. Or am I in a feeling? And then you go back to that kind of removing yourself and allowing yourself some space to just start to observe what's actually unfolding for you. 
it's a wonderful thing to remember that our brain secretes thoughts, not fact, not yeah. truth. Yeah. Um, just it's uh, I, I continually reference and I should, Jed, I must work out the origins of this quote, um, but I love the quote. I used to think uh, that the brain was the most important organ in the body until I realized which organ was telling me that. <laughs> uh, it's a fantastic one jad do you have any further questions for the witness uh no further questions i was just thinking i was reflecting then on the word no and how compassionate it, it, i often mm. say to clients that no is one of the most compassionate words you can learn how to use in terms of saying no to to others and and declaring a boundary but also what I heard in what you were just talking about then, Megan, I think, is there's a time where we have to say no to ourselves. Yeah. And sometimes that no can be to that 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 dominant old narrative that's that's beating ourselves up. You know, sometimes we can mindfully kind of let it be there and just sort of, you know, let it bubble away and grow. But sometimes we actually have to say, no, I'm not going down that route today. And that in itself is another kind of really powerful, you know, compassionate sort of thing. There's this sort of mistaken assumption i think with compassion that it's all kind of flower and rainbows and that it's all kind of nicey nicey but there's a time to be kind of firm but fair and firm but fair with ourselves you know saying no to that drink or no to that you know crack pipe or whatever it might be is still a you know that's that's a very yeah. powerful compassionate thing but it involves putting up a wall putting up a boundary say, yeah. saying no and, and that can also be turned towards that part of ourselves that's really harsh and nasty at times yeah and I think that that has certainly been um, another huge gift, I think, of, of midlife. And, you know, when I talk about midlife, clearly none of us know when midlife is. Midlife could have been when you're eight years old. Like, you, you, you have no idea. But you kind of reach a stage for me. You know, I turn 42 in a few months. And I'm aware of the fact that if I'm lucky, I have as long left as I have mm. had. My heart mm. and my liver are probably going to put in for early retirement. I partied pretty hard for a long time when I was younger. Just makes them stronger. <laughs> like, well, I like to, they're pickled, right? Like, you know, like, <laughs> God, so it's, um, let's, let's go with that. Like I'm embalmed. Um, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, probably, you know, but yeah, yeah. that remains to be seen. But one of the things that I have found one of the many, many gifts of this vulnerability that I find myself in in midlife, because I'm at a stage now where the suffering caused by vulnerability, which can be very painful, is, is the, the greater suffering for me is not being who I am. Mm. Right? So it's very easy for me in some ways to compare and contrast those two things and to commit to being as authentic as I possibly can and one of the things that's been really fascinating to me to observe over the last couple of years is that the boundaries that I now have, which still need a lot of work, I've got one, um, my best friend gives me what she calls a loving bitch slap. And she always, as soon as either one of us says, yeah, this comes from a place of love. I'm like, Ooh, I do not want to hear this, but I probably need to, you know, and she calls me on my boundaries all the time. And this is, you know, the therapist trying to, you know, put themselves through therapy and the coach trying to coach themselves. And I'm human, right. I'm totally imperfect, but you reach this point. I just wrote an essay about this a few weeks ago. And, and to summarize, basically I'm going to paraphrase myself probably badly, but you start to realize that all those years that you spent trying to be nice 
and easy to manage and well-liked were paid for with your emotional, physical, mental, spiritual sovereignty. And the pain of allowing that to be continually violated once you become aware of it is actually more frightening than the pain of allowing yourself to be truly vulnerable and to say no without explanation. That's another thing I get my clients to practice all the time. No, thanks. Oh, no, I won't be able to do that. Stop talking. <laughs> you don't need to give someone a reason. You don't need to show them how busy your calendar is. It's none of their business. If you want to be laying on the sofa that afternoon instead of running the fundraising barbecue, doesn't matter. You don't want to do it. Say no, stop talking, mm. you know? Um, and you start to realize the power in that word and how you are actually beginning to take ownership for your self-worth by allowing yourself and giving yourself permission to say no, which is mm. so, so hard. Mm. We all want to be loved. We all want to be liked. But I think you reach a point where you're like, all these people love me because I say yes all the time, but I don't love myself. And you reach a point in your life where you're like, actually, this is the most important relationship. Because I'm the only one at the end of the day who's here for myself, really. Mm. I rely on a lot of other people, but all that can be taken away very quickly. You know, so it's just me and my soul on this journey. And I better be right with myself. And if I have to say no and piss a lot of people off to do that, then so be it. Mm. Yeah, carrying around that sports bag of seeking validation externally gets really heavy. Yeah. And uh, now what I'm kind of hearing you say is one of the wonderful benefits of midlife, which, which I can very much attest to, is just putting that bag down and going, yeah. uh, I'm not going to seek validation <sighs> externally as much. There's far too much rich work to be done when I turn the lens inward. Yeah. Just sort of to pick up on something you said, differentiation. You were, the, the word you used a couple of times was differentiate. And I want to applaud the skill sets and the application of the skill sets, because I think people, at least was my experience, to differentiate between the suffering that I'm holding, as opposed to the perceived difficulties of where I could get to where there will be less suffering. It's a wilderness in the trees thing. And yeah. because of a lack of conditioning and because of a, you know, some of the aforementioned reasons that we talked about, which aren't our fault your mother's narrative about sort of giving herself a bit of a beating was something she probably observed from her parents, not her fault. So it's interesting. Sometimes we're caught in the suffering. That's our thing. I'm to sort of steer this crazy bus back towards the, <laughs> the beginning. What is it? Is it the skill sets? Is it the application of the skill sets that help help us to differentiate and perhaps build the bridge? I think it's the application of the skill sets. I think it's really important to have some tools. You know, I, I use the analogy of the toolbox a lot. I like that. I like the thought of being able to open up my toolbox and going, today I need some embodiment practice, or today I need this, or today I need that. Um, however, to, in my experience, and certainly something I invite my clients to explore and generally has a quite high quote unquote success rate in terms of becoming something that they really can use that you have always available to you, it would also be the development of my intuition and teaching myself and allowing myself to trust that intuition and to start to understand 
that my gut instinct is actually very powerful and it's almost never wrong, mm. you know? And it's only been really, you know, I, I want to think the best of everyone. And it's only been recently that I, I, if I meet someone and I get like a bad vibe off them, I'm like, hmm, okay, I'm going to keep a little distance here. And usually down the track, they give me a reason that I'm like, I'm glad I did that, you know, and it may be really bad, or it might just be that their energy doesn't gel with me. But again, that connection to our intuition, intuition is something that most of us are divorced from. Mm. Um, it's something that we are taught to deny. It's something that we're taught, you know, it's woo, right? Jed, Jed and I use that word a lot. We talk about the woo or the woo woo. I'm like, I am here for the woo. You know, there's, <laughs> and if it's working for you, like for, by all means use it. So with that kind of embodied intuition and knowing for me, that's where I check into myself. Like, how do I need to approach this situation? Do I need to approach it really calm and just offer myself some compassion and just tell myself like, it's okay. I still love you. Or do I need to give myself a good stern talking to because both of those methodologies have great value to me. And so the, the exercise that I walk my clients through to just start to taste what their intuition might feel like for them. And again, there is no hard and fast. This is what intuition feels like. And I'm going to teach you that, you know, you can look all you want on social media, like six steps to feel your intuition. That's great. Those methodologies might work. You can buy it on sale for 99 cents, you know, but you have to work out how it feels for you. And so just to kind of wrap it up, because I think this is something really beautiful to kind of offer to people that they can go and try very easily is to sit with yourself, take a few deep breaths, you know, allow yourself to kind of drop into it. So, you know, for me, it's always that analogy of allowing the glitter in the snow globe to kind of settle, just allow yourself to come into your body and be with your breath. And then you make several statements that you know to be true. I love my dog. My favorite color is red. I, Hawaiian pizza is the best. Mm. So things, just things that you, you know, I mean, obviously other people are going to disagree with those statements, but for you, you know them to be as true as anything possibly could be in your experience. And you just observe how your body feels when you make those statements. And generally it stays pretty relaxed. It stays pretty open. There's not, you know, it's not a huge movement either way. You're just kind of there and you observe them and you make these statements and there's not this big reaction. And you get up, go for a walk, do something for a few minutes, you come back, you drop yourself back into that calm, quiet state, and then you reverse the statements. Hawaiian pizza is disgusting. I hate my dog. I wish they get hit by a car. And even saying that to you now, my whole body just goes and contracts because that is a lie in my experience that I wish for my dog to be hit by a car. And so what we're doing there again is we're practicing this technique of embodied intuition, making statements that don't bear great consequence to our life so that eventually we can begin to use that technique to really start to suss out things like, I need to leave my marriage mm -hmm. or that was abusive behavior or I think I have a dependency on alcohol or my child needs to see a psychologist or all of these statements that we're trying to work through on this emotional level that so much of our shame and our baggage starts to interrupt that frequency, but your body will tell you the truth. So if you can start to get in touch with that, then you start to use that to work out, you know, here's all my tools. 
And I get people to get literally a toolbox from Bunnings. And as they're doing their coaching with me, if it fits for them, they get little pieces of paper. Some people get really funky and creative and they cut them out like hammers and saws and all sorts of different things. And they write things down, you know, mindfulness, self-compassion, embodied, whatever it is, you know, whatever technique it is. And they put it in their toolbox and they have this physical representation that they can open up and kind of pick these things out and be like, oh, is this what I need? Is that what I need? And when you get to the place where you, A, have those skill sets or those modalities and that support system available to you, and you've started the practice of developing it or knowing who to ask for help if you don't have it yet, and and you layer that with that intuitive ability to know what tool it is that you actually need in that situation, you're on fire. And that's when it gets really, 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 really cool to see the transformation that can be achieved in people's lives. What I really have enjoyed about this discussion is your constant reference to skill sets, your constant reference to choice, your constant reference to agency. It is refreshing, Megan Burks. I have always been naturally distrustful of the apparent bodhisattva, of the apparent guru who will say, begin sentences with things like, you need to, and you have to. And, uh, you know, this is, what you sh- this is what you need to do. It's just such a lovely energy that's emanating from you. And, and I, what, I'm, what I'm getting from it is you're teaching, you're teaching people. It's like you're giving them this little backpack of tools that's yeah. got on the back of it that says you do you. Yeah, you know, as exactly. a teacher, as a teacher, um, and and Jen and I do much of the same stuff, and we try to teach these skill sets. It's like I don't know your experience; you're the expert on that. Mm-hmm. You've got a reigning sovereign, king, queen, whatever you want to talk about, grand poobah, chairman of your own board. <laughs> but let's incorporate these skill sets. Let's incorporate these techniques, and see if you can't expand your empire. Yeah. So I just, yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. And I'm aware that we've kept you for an hour and a half. <laughs> I was like, I, have um, idea. I can't see the clock without my glasses. Look, it's I'm fantastic. I have no so idea what time it is. If, if it's okay, should we start the discussion now or? Yeah. No, now that we're warmed up, let's go. That's cool. Oh, thank you so much. It was just uh, absolutely adorable to, uh, to meet you and to wax lyrical. And uh, Jed, please, please, can we have Megan back? There's so many other topics that I'd love to. Uh, I would, I would. Love please, that. please. I would love. <laughs> I can. T- you know, this is really. Um, this is these kinds of things are really a pinch me moment. And you know, the ego part's just like, oh, you get to listen to your voice for like an hour and a half. Like, <laughs> you know, like I love hearing myself talk. You know, I'm not gonna. I won't lie. Um, but it's always really funny to me. Um, you know, this is my job. Yes. This is my life. And I didn't actually give myself permission and, you know, spent so many years, you know, Jed, Jed knows this cause he's known me for a while, but I spent so many years really dealing with imposter syndrome and thinking I have nothing of value to add. And then I get to have these conversations with people now where we're really in this place where none of us know what we're doing. Mm. Nobody knows what they're doing. And so for me, that's the takeaway on that's been like, I may not be the best coach, but I may be the best coach for you. Mm. 
And that's very dependent on where people are and what it is that they're seeking and how my skill sets complement, you know, and that's where you really can kind of see it is this, this meeting of these energies that kind of fill those gaps until people can start to fill them on their own. So it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with both of you, mostly you, Mike, but both of you. Um, Jan and I will have to catch up some other time. Um, I, I, I just want to butt in and have one little suggestion near the end. I reckon it'd be awesome if we could record a podcast doing a cold bath immersion session at some stage, now yeah. that we're, we're free to move between suburbs yes. and whatnot. Yes. Oh, dude, that's, Absolutely. That's, that's my jam. Yeah. I will uh, I will liberate my budgie smugglers just for that cause. Me too. Yeah, and you look, just going to say, we've already established that koala ears are okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> keep it warm while it hibernates, guys, so, you know, it's not going anywhere for the winter. It's, <laughs> Certainly not. Yeah, 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 unless you're in a marsupial. Is a beaver a marsupial? <laughs> No, it's a mammal. Is it? Mammal. Yeah. It's a mammal. Yeah. It's a mammal. Is a koala um, a marsupial? Uh, are there any mammals indigenous to Australia? I think Ask it's a the Canadian yeah, about your animals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're pretty much, I think they're all mammals in Australia. Uh, the, uh, anyway. Look, we I'm are like, definitely digressing. Megan, no, it's okay to be vulnerable, man. We're just modeling vulnerability. Like, I'm okay where, not can, where can people find you if they want to find out more about you? Um, so the best place to find me is on Instagram at Megan Burks Coaching. I do have a website. I don't know if anyone actually uses that. Oh, they um, will now. They will. Oh, now. they will now. We've well, got a Megan lot of Burks coaching. Is definitely, um, definitely the best place to connect with me. That's the one social media platform that I actually check in on pretty frequently. And yeah, I've got lots of stuff coming up this year. So jump on there and follow along to. Just stay tuned with some pretty exciting announcements, actually. So, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. See you later. Mm-hmm.